Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. Welcome all you listeners as we continue our series in James. Today we're going to be exploring James chapter 3 verses 1 to 12 and the issue of teaching, speaking truth, and the power of the tongue. But first, let me remind you that the central concern of James's letter is true religion and worship by loving others through being like Christ. That Christ-like love demonstrates that we have been truly changed by Christ and responding to God in true faith through right belief produces right actions. He helps his readers to do this by addressing their greed and materialism, their anger, ungodly speech, and discrimination against others through prejudiced attitudes and actions. Like us today, again, they simply struggled to love one another in Christ. In our previous sessions in chapter 2, James addresses what true faith is as it relates to genuine works. The relationship between faith and works is simply that since we believe that we are saved by Christ, it doesn't make sense that we wouldn't be like, look like, or act like him, as we are made to be like and walk in him. James uses the person of Abraham to demonstrate his point because he believed God in the promises that he was given as he left his homeland. God tested Abraham's faith by asking him to offer up his son Isaac, remember. God wanted further action from his faith. James is saying that since you believe you are saved by Christ, we should show evidence of this. We are made like Christ. Let's turn our attention to today's text. And it's a little bit long, but it's one coherent thought, and it's important that we read it that way. James chapter 3, verses 1 to 12 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, because you know that we will be judged more strictly. For we all stumble in many ways. If someone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect individual, able to control the entire body as well. And if we put bits into the mouth of horses to get them to obey us, then we guide their entire body. Look at ships too. Though they are so large and driven by harsh winds, they are steered by a tiny rudder, wherever the pilot's inclination directs. So too, the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it has great pretensions. Think how small a flame sets a huge forest ablaze. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue represents the world of wrongdoing among the parts of our bodies. It pollutes the entire body and sets fire to the course of human existence. And is set on fire by hell. For every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and sea creature is subdued and has been subdued by humankind. Verse 8. But no human being can subdue the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse people made in God's image. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. These things should not be so, my brothers and sisters. Verse 11. A spring does not pour out fresh water and bitter water from the same opening, does it? Can a fig tree produce olives, my brothers and sisters, or a vine produce figs? Neither can, a salt, salt, neither can a salt water spring produce fresh water. Now there's a lot to unpack here. His focus is still the same. However, it seems that he is not only concerned with the tongue in terms of unkind speech, anger, and gossip, etc., 
but I think his main concern is sound teaching. He is concerned that false teaching is spread through the power of the tongue. In fact, he gives eight word pictures, like he so often does, or analogies to describe the characteristics and results of false teaching spoken through a false gospel. He likens the tongue or false speech to a horse's bit, a ship's rudder, a fire, wild animals, a deadly poison, bitter or undrinkable water, a confused olive tree, and also springs of water. We will get to these in a moment. First, let's draw attention to verses 1 through 2, which says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, because you know that we will be judged more strictly. For we all stumble in many ways. If someone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect individual, able to control the entire body as well. James wants his readers to understand that making claims about God is serious business. That if we speak of God and teach others about who he is, that we better get it right. Remember that James wrote in chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, But you have dishonored the poor. Are not the rich oppressing you and dragging you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme the good name of the one you belong to? They were struggling to love one another, specifically the poor among them, and they were showing partiality, as we've talked about before. James points out here that their sinful actions were misrepresenting and dishonoring God because they were claiming to be followers of God. They were making God out to be a liar in the eyes of the poor people they were mistreating. Here, in James chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, the same principle applies, but this time he addresses their teaching and words about God. He gives a stark warning that teachers should beware, that they should be aware that they'll undergo stricter judgment. Teachers will be accountable in ways that others aren't, because they are proclaiming who God is, what he's like, and what he commands, and others will inevitably follow. Not only will others follow a teacher's words as far as attitude and speech are concerned, but they will also follow, well, their teaching. He warns them that the tongue is a powerful thing and it's difficult to control, that it is known for boasting grand things. Isn't this a constant temptation? Our words represent ideas, and ideas are weighed as truth, fact, and conviction that develops our reality. James doesn't want his audience to be deceived by false teaching. He doesn't want them to be led astray believing that saving faith doesn't include transformation and change, because it does. Jesus himself gives a similar striking warning to his disciples in Matthew 18 verses 1 through 7, which says, At this time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child had him stand among them and said, I tell you the truth, unless you turn around and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a huge millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the open sea. Woe to the world because of stumbling blocks. You see, the heavy reality of this warning is weighted with causing one who believes to stumble in sin. How can we cause someone to sin? This is precisely what James is getting at. 
We can influence people to the point of them thinking that false truth or ungodly behavior is true and acceptable to God. This results in blaspheming God by misrepresenting who he is. I believe that these teachers in James are those or some among those identified in chapter 2, verses 1 to 13 that we've already went over. These who were doing the sorting of the rich and poor, discriminating against the poor, and giving partial treatment to the wealthy. These were some of the leaders and teachers of their local church. This sounds a lot like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, doesn't it? They were hypocritical individuals who claimed inaccurate and false things about God and became stumbling blocks for those listening to them. James uses the following powerful word pictures to address his concern with his audience. For review, he likens the tongue or false speech to a horse's bit, a ship's rudder, a fire, wild animals, a deadly poison, bitter undrinkable water, a confused olive tree, and lastly, a spring of water. These can be broken down into four distinctions that James is making about the tongue. Number one, that the tongue guides the body. It's influential and powerful. Number two, the tongue is destructive and can cause great damage. Number three, the tongue is difficult to control. And four, the tongue is deceptive and shows the true intent of the heart. Let's tackle these four distinctions in order. First, the tongue guides the body and is extremely influential. He uses the analogy of a bit in a horse's mouth and a ship's rudder to convey that the tongue is a very small piece of the human body, but has a very big influence on what one says and does. It has big consequences. A small piece of metal can nearly completely control a thousand pound horse. Additionally, a very small part of a ship and its rudder can control the direction of a large boat. The analogy is quite simple. Our tongue guides and shapes the direction of the rest of our body. We speak what we're thinking and feeling and oftentimes it reveals what's in our hearts. The result in both positive and the negative consequences in life and relationships depending on what's in our hearts. It has the power to communicate and influence. Words can hurt or influence others, especially what they think about God and how they approach Him in truth. Second, the tongue is destructive and can cause great damage. James likens the tongue to a fire. In James chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, he says, Think how small a flame sets a huge forest ablaze, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue represents the world of wrongdoing among the parts of our body. It pollutes the entire body and sets fire to the course of human existence, and is set on fire by hell. This point is profound. A fire starts small and it spreads rapidly. A wicked tongue that expresses a wicked heart not only corrupts the entire person, but sets ablaze those around them. The particular kind of fire that James refers to is peculiar because he says it's the kind of fire that is set on a blaze from hell. The fire of hell represents God's judgment on wickedness, disobedience, evil thoughts, motives, and actions that are against the very character and the nature of God. Is James's audience ready to confess and repent of their wickedness as they have claimed the message of Christ and misrepresented God? Do we have rebellion and wickedness roll off of our tongues, which comes from our hearts, influencing the rest of our motives, words, and actions? And worse, 
Do these things spill over and influence others? Do we cause others to follow our wrong ideas, our self-serving truths and ungodly actions? The great offense of his audience is that they claim to be Christian, yet they look and act like a fallen, condemned, polluted world. This is what James is most concerned about. The third distinction made is that the tongue is very difficult to control. It can't be tamed. He makes the contrast that beasts of the ground, sea, and air have been tamed and subdued by humans, but not the wild animal of the tongue. Imagine what it would be like to catch and tame a wild mustang as it fights, sporadically bucks, and randomly runs all over the place because it lacks discipline. It's unruly and initially refuses to be compliant to being used for productive means. Does the horse not know that it could hurt those trying to help it? Does the horse not understand that with a saddle it could be of great service to someone in need? Of course not. Not at first. It has to be disciplined for a greater purpose. James is saying that the tongue can't be tamed. It's just too wild, too sporadic, too random. The tongue, like a young wild mustang, runs off of impulse and instinct. The tongue expresses our natural impulses and instincts that are, that are evil and self-serving. Does, Does James really mean that the tongue can't be tamed or changed? I don't think so. However, in the context of his letter, his sentiment about the human tongue not being able to be tamed is indicative of what he's seen in his audience. They're wild and freely run off of their natural instincts, readily responding to their impulses of greed, anger, discrimination, and partiality. They're too willing to turn to the wickedness even when they know the character and nature of God, the royal law of love of which they themselves have been recipients yet refuse to extend it to others. What is the solution then? The solution is supernatural change through Jesus Christ. The last distinction made about the tongue is that it's deceptive and shows the true intent of the heart. James uses three different analogies in this section of James chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, which says, But no human being can subdue the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse people made in God's image. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. These things should not be so, my brothers and sisters. A spring does not pour out fresh water and bitter water from the same opening, does it? Can a fig tree produce olives, my brothers and sisters, or a vine produce figs? Neither can a saltwater spring produce fresh water. Again, this is striking because he reveals that one can speak evil and good. He's concerned about this inconsistency. I don't imagine that James is referring to the believers who struggle as Paul struggles in expressing in Romans chapter 7 as he laments over his own challenge to live out Christ-likeness in a consistent manner. In Romans 7 verses 22 to 25, Paul says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see a different law in my members waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that is in my members, wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God in my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. 
What I think James is saying is that sinful practices in our thinking, words, and actions that are accepted as being godly is not going to work. That we struggle, yes, but to accept practices of greed, ungodly anger, and discrimination as acceptable before God is dangerous territory. This is the fundamental difference between Paul and James's audience. Paul recognized and confessed his struggle and wouldn't accept this kind of reality in his life, and he turned to Christ. James's audience doesn't appear to have shared the same response. Hence, James refers to the tongue as poison that praises God and curses his image bearers at the same time. One can curse another through unrighteous anger, unkind speech, as well as curse them through discriminatory actions of partiality. It simply, again, doesn't work. That one who lives like this is like a spring that can't produce both fresh and bitter water. Either a spring produces fresh water or bitter water because of what's at its source. These springs in the text are definitely producing bitter water. Or one like this is a confused olive tree that produces figs. So what's the point? An olive tree can't produce figs. A fig tree produces figs. We can't know God in his goodness unless we resemble his character and nature. What kind of fruit do we bear? Specifically in how we treat and care for other humans who are fellow image bearers of the creator God. This is the whole focal point of James's letter. It's loving people. How does God care for and love people? If we truly know God and praise him, then we will rightly mimic his heart and actions and realize and confess our sin in areas of our living and thinking that aren't of God. Everything that James addresses revolves around Christ-likeness towards other humans through living water and godly fruit. What do you need to address in your life that doesn't look like God? Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu partner.